0: Hebrews chapter 12, verses 14 to 17. This also is God's holy word. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. But we go to our God and ask for his blessings on the reading and also the preaching of his holy word. Our blessed God, we thank you for you have given us your word. You've given us your word as warnings. You've given us direction. You've given us warnings, Father, that we would heed them. That we would believe your promise. uh, That we would trust in you. Father, we acknowledge that there are many ways uh, to apostatize. And not just in in our doctrine, but in life. Father, we pray for the guarding of your people. We pray, Father, for the unity of the body. We pray, Father, for the purity of those in Christ's church. Father, we pray that there would be reverence in all, even as we receive the things from your word that we, they would not become commonplace to us. Father, may we cherish the good news of the gospel. May we delight in worshiping and serving you. May we repent of our sins and trust in Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, for joy in the Holy Spirit. And we pray, Father, that the good news of the gospel would go forward with power even this day. That if any are here who have not professed faith in Christ, we pray that your Holy Spirit would do a mighty work of conversion. Father, we thank you for your love for us. We pray, Father, that your Son, Jesus Christ, would be exalted and that your servant would be humbled. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. (coughs) Uh, Some years ago, uh, one of Melissa, one of my wife's friends from college, who was Australian, came to visit us. And we took him uh, to an American zoo. And we pointed out, hey, look, look at those kangaroos over there. Look how cool they are. And they had a little son also named Tim, who was maybe two or three years old. And their entire family had no interest in the kangaroos, whether they're red kangaroos or whatever color, or the varieties of kangaroos. We were amused by them. They hop around. They have their marsupials, right? They, they have uh, They carry their young in a pouch. And we thought, oh, this is great. We come to the zoo. We see kangaroos. And they didn't even bother to look they they were amused with our american gray squirrels that were just wandering around they're they're not uh, exhibits they're not zoo animals they're just wandering around in the zoo and then then we stopped and we thought "Oh, wait a minute there are kangaroos everywhere in australia they don't care for them that's commonplace children you ever think sometimes that the things in church the things that you hear god's word the doctrines that you're taught Do they ever become commonplace to you? Like the kangaroo to an Australian. Here we have warnings. Warnings about irreverence or profanity, so to say. Not profanity as in bad language, but being profane. Being irreverent with what the Lord has given us. May the promises of God, the good news of the gospel, never become common to you such that you despise it. It's something that you must cherish, you must learn to cherish. That each time you hear the good news of the gospel, may you cherish it all the more. May it not become commonplace, may it not become old trash. Here we see in this book of Hebrews, the author, never identified, uh, written anonymously, uh, was writing to these Hebrew Christians So uh, by that, we understand those who were ethnic Jews, those who were once religiously Jewish, but had converted to Christianity in their new life in Christ. They were facing great persecution. Uh, The book of Hebrews speaks about it when uh, the author says that they joyfully accepted the plundering of their property, meaning that their goods were being taken from them. This was uh, uh, sanctioned theft. Meaning that they had goods, they had wealth, and it was taken from them. And this was this is typically the, the beginning of uh, persecution, is that property is lost. And, and other things had come also. There were those among them who were in prison because of their faith. And these Hebrew Christians were starting to consider a return to their old ways of Judaism. This is what we call apostasy, departing from the faith. And they thought about it uh, regarding uh, an improvement of their situation. They were beginning to count the cost and wonder what they're wondering what not they should go back to the old ways. Here the author provides a number of arguments uh, speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ. There is there's no place in the scriptures that speaks about Christ as our great high priest. If it wasn't for Hebrews, we would not have a right understanding of it. Jesus Christ is the high priest. That he is different from all the other priests. He is of the order of Melchizedek. He's not of the order of Levi. Here we ought to understand that Christ and the new covenant are exceedingly better than the old covenant. They're vastly superior. That there is no going back. It's as if Israel from of old... Wandering in the wilderness, not realizing that they were actually free men. And thinking how great it was, how much better it was when we weren't slaves in Egypt. We had all the leeks, we had all the cucumbers, we had all the coriander, we had pots of meat. We should turn around and go back there. This is a reminder to us that there is no going back. Your life in Christ must be viewed as entirely better and new. That this is not merely this idea of, hey, uh, there were some positives and negatives, and we're trying to outweigh, we're trying to weigh, which is the positives and negatives that were better? That your life in Christ must be the positive. Having Christ is everything. Regardless of all the negatives that come with it. The loss of, of status, uh, the confiscation of property, the persecution that comes with his name. Here, we see in this passage... Rather than pursuing peace and holiness, apostasy is failing to obtain God's grace, which always ends in grief and despair. Rather than pursuing peace and holiness, apostasy is failing to obtain God's grace, which always ends in grief and despair. We'll look at this in three points. The first is the warning of apostasy. Second, the patterns of apostasy. And third, the despair of apostasy. So the first point, the warning of apostasy in verses Uh, 14 and 15 strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God here in the context of this whole letter the the author speaks about the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ it speaks about how Jesus is that high priest that no one could could do what he did. That he is the one, our Lord Jesus, who came. That he is the throne of grace to which we must go boldly. Not not sheepishly, not reluctantly, but we must go boldly to him. Because we know that we will find grace to help in our time of need. Here in Hebrews chapter 12, the author had just finished speaking about God's discipline. And no discipline seems pleasant. Here he speaks about uh, discipline in our everyday lives. He says that we have, we've had earthly fathers. They disciplined us as seemed best to them. None of those disciplines were pleasant. And so also in the Christian life. Discipline is not pleasant. But we look, look forward to the peaceable fruit of righteousness. That we may share in God's holiness. That is God's goal in our discipline. It's not fun, it's not enjoyable, it's not pleasurable. But without it, what do we end up in? We end up in unbelief and wickedness. Here, we think about the discipline of God. That he's disciplining us so that we might share in his holiness. Here, the positive statement about apostasy and avoiding it is there in verse 14. Strive for or pursue peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Here, perhaps you're thinking, hey, wait a minute, uh, there's something that you're missing. Uh, apostasy is a denial of the faith. And here you're talking about actions. Hey, we need to think about it from this perspective. Titus chapter 1, it was in verse 16. Uh, they profess to know him, but by their deeds they deny him. So you, you will meet people, perhaps you've met them already, I've met them. Those who have uh, denied the faith by their life. They've denied the faith by, by, by their sins. They're still saying, hey, listen, I, me and Jesus, we're fine. But, uh, you know, I, I, I did all kinds of sins. I've never repented of them. But, hey, I'm, I'm excommunicated, excommunicated from the church. But me and Jesus, were okay. And I'm still believing him. This is what people will say. But by their life, they deny him. Here, we think about these positive statements. Pursuing peace with everyone and pursuing holiness in your life. This is not merely, a, I think about it every once in a while, this pursuit uh, is very much, you think about how Esau would have pursued that game animal, that, that deer or that gazelle, whatever, whatever the animal is, that he would have to go hunt after it. There would be a diligent pursuit. So also in your life to pursue peace. This peace and holiness are divine gifts that come through the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's a reminder to us that we're not called to manufacture peace. We're not called to manufacture holiness in our lives. This peace is a gift of God. There in Romans five one, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We think about the various levels of peace. In order to have peace in your life, you must have peace above. You have peace with God, vertical peace. And then having vertical peace, then you can have peace within. Have you ever met people who always seem to be in a huff, in a rage? There's no peace within them. And it's because they're lacking peace vertically with God. So having peace with God through Jesus Christ, being justified by faith, you can have peace with God, then you can have peace within and having peace within, then you're able to have peace with your fellow man. So also with holiness, you see that this is what God calls us to. Hebrews 10.10 10, And by that, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. There also in verse 14, For by a single offering he has perfected for all, to- for all time those who are being sanctified. So for you and for me in Christ, pursuing peace and holiness means living out practically this new life to which Christ has called you. So you're not going to have peace right away after, after conversion. It's not, as, it's not as if you're going to look and there's going to be peace right away. There's not going to be holiness in your life right away. We talk about how Jesus, in justification, he paid for the penalty of your sins. That uh, he... ...granted you his holiness by faith... ...that you're called to receive the promises of the gospel... ...the very righteousness that you lack... ...you're called to receive and believe the righteousness of Jesus Christ as your own... ...that that the perfect life he lived... ...you and I are called to believe that when we trust in his promise... ...that his righteousness is, is given to us, credited to us by faith... ...that your sins have been placed on his shoulders on the cross... Here in sanctification then. It is the, the purifying of your life. The producing of this holiness. We Think about these instructions about peace. In verse 14. Strive for peace with everyone. So it's not just strive for peace with some people. Not just strive for peace with those that you like. Strive for peace with everyone. But we're told not at the expense of holiness. The very nature of Sinners is that peace cannot be maintained with the ungodly... unless you're approving, celebrating, accepting of their vices. Yeah, We hear that term, even celebrating, correct? That you must approve. Unless you approve of my ways, I will not have peace with you. And the answer for that we find in verse 14. Strive for peace with everyone, and for the holiness... without which no one will see the Lord. Our answer to that is, hey, listen, we'd like to have peace but we don't sacrifice holiness for peace. This is a very poor sacrifice. Here, the whole question comes up. What are you willing to do to be at peace? A Christian is not one who can seek peace at all costs. There cannot be a sacrifice of holiness. Romans twelve eighteen: If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. What this tells us, what this reminds us of, is that we cannot control the response or the desires of others. What you're called to do is manage yourself. That, hey, listen, we're trying to live at peace. These are the concessions we're trying to make. We're trying to live in an understanding way. Uh, we cannot control their actions, their response. Psalm 34, 14. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace. And pursue it. This pursuing is a diligent chase. That we ought to desire peace. We ought to labor towards peace. We have also instructions about this holiness. Here we have this warning. Without which. or And for the holiness. Without which no one will see the Lord. Here. It's a warning. That unless the Lord is producing in you. This holiness. Then you're not in him. That. The gospel is not that we can continue on in the lives that we once lived in darkness. It's not that we can continue in darkness and be saved. The good news is that Christ has called us to something new, something far better. That for those who are saved, there's a willingness to leave the life of darkness. And instead to walk in his marvelous light. God's holiness describes his otherness how he is distinct from his creation, his otherness, his purity. For the Christian, we're in the world but not of the world. So for the Christian, holiness is bearing a resemblance to God, being distinct from the world. So the world does things a certain way, and what the world should see in you is someone who is different, someone who has been set apart by God means no longer living in darkness, but rather basking in God's marvelous light. Is your your life, is your life and are your ways marked by this holiness? Do people see in you one who loves the Lord Jesus Christ, that by your speech, by your actions, by your demeanor, by your attitudes, do you manifest the holiness to which God has called you to? We see also, the negative statements so the positive was strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord there's also the negative statement there in verse 15 see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God the grace of God is freely offered to sinners this is called the free offer of the gospel the, the gospel is given indiscriminately to all believe upon Jesus Christ repent And believe in Christ and you'll be saved. Turn away from sin. This is a call, this is a command from God that we would believe upon his son. That we would embrace his promises. Here we think about uh, how sinners respond to this command. On one hand it's an offer but it's also God's command that we would repent and believe upon Jesus Christ. There's a tendency to ignore it. God, God has commanded, but we just ignore it. You know, it's not, it's not so important right now. Yeah, that sounds great, but um, I have other priorities. Others reject it, and then some even despise it. But when you stop to think, ignoring the promise or ignoring the offer, rejecting the offer, and despising the offer... We tend to think of those as uh, three different levels, three different responses to the gospel. But when you boil them down, there is actually no difference between them. When God has commanded you to do something, if you ignore it, it is rejecting it. It is rejecting it and it's also despising it. When God says what you need in life is to believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. What you need is to repent of your sins, turn away from them. If you ignore it, it is to reject the offer. It is to turn away. It is to rebel against the command. It is to despise God. Perhaps you're thinking, not me, not now, not today, not until I do whatever it is. It tells, it tells me then, if you're thinking that, is that the gospel is not for you. Because otherwise, you're going to say, it's for me, and it's for me right now. This is what you and I need. People tend to view God's grace like a, a can of corn on the shelf at the local grocery store. Oh, corn, of course I can get corn wherever I want. I just go to the grocery store and pick it up anytime, anytime I can go. But that store is not always open. You learn that during the pandemic and during the riots, right? You show, hey, wait, wait a minute, my, my store is not open. Or that can of corn may not be there. Some, someone claimed it because, hey, everyone's concerned. We're, we're having these, uh, uh, what is it, these, these supply chain issues, and you can't get certain supplies uh, like corn or, or whatever it is. We, we fall short of or we, we run short of many things. And many times people think of the grace of God in the same way. That can of corn is always going to be there. Anytime I need it, I'll go get it. But that's not so. The devil says, you know what? You always have tomorrow to believe in Jesus Christ. But that tomorrow never comes. Because when it's tomorrow, then it will be tomorrow again. The Lord's day is today. And the time of salvation is today. It's not tomorrow. The time to repent is now. We see this regarding the story, the parable about the rich man and the barns. In Luke 12. He got rich. What am I going to do? I'll build bigger barns. And store all my grain. And I'll eat, drink, and be merry. And I'll be wealthy. It was God who said to him. You fool. This very night. Your soul is required of you. Now who will own. What you have prepared. He presumed upon all the all the time that he had. Years. Decades. People think about the. The thief on the cross. And. If you, if you see this man as a, as a model for your life, this is dangerous. For someone to think, you know what, I want to be like the thief on the cross. At the very end of my life, I'm going to commit my life to Christ and be saved. Anyone who thinks that is not saved. Anyone who has committed his life to Christ would be thinking, if only I committed my life to Christ earlier. Not later. Anyone who has been faithful to follow Jesus Christ, they would never say, if only I awaited. No. The answer will always be, if only I did it earlier. If only I committed my life and my youth. This is the proper understanding, because it's not a curse. It is not a loss for faithful service to Jesus Christ. It is a great gain. Mm-hmm. We cannot presume on time or opportunity. can't say that God's grace has always be there. It's it's, uh, it's just something I can pick up whenever I need it. Yeah, you remember the, um, what's his name, Tom, Tom Baudet? Uh, the Motel 6 logo. We'll leave the light on for you. Right? Apparently that, that commercial won all kinds of awards. We'll leave the light on for you. Hey, God's grace? Yeah, we'll leave, leave the light on for you. No worries. I can get to it whenever I want. That day won't ever come. You must commit to the Lord Jesus Christ today. You must not miss his grace. It must not be something so common that you despise it. You must embrace the promises of the gospel today while it is offered to you. This is the warning of apostasy. We have second, the patterns of apostasy in verses 15 and 16. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. Here, he mentions two things, uh, three things: uh, bitterness, sexual immorality, and profaneness or irreverence or unholiness, like Esau. So here we ought to be able to see the link that he mentions peace, and then he mentions holiness. We ought to be striving for peace. We ought to be striving for holiness. And then bitterness is a failure of seeking peace, and that sexual immorality and and uh, irreverence. That's a failure of seeking holiness. So there's root of bitterness. There's root of bitterness. It comes when you and I are not pursuing peace with all men. This perhaps was taken from Deuteronomy twenty nine eighteen. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. Children, have you ever wondered if, uh, if you were stranded in the wilderness... There's books written on uh, wilderness survival, how you can feed off the land. This is, this is also this, this old method of foraging. Right? There was a time when, when people uh, saw the wilderness as, as God's provision of a supermarket. Right? There's all kinds of plants that we can eat that aren't uh, made use of. They, they're not harvested. Uh, but there is a rule that if there's any plant out there, uh, they, they talk about how you ought to smell it. Uh, that you have to, you know, rub it on your hands, see if any any kind of rash develops, right? That, that's, that's a bad sign, don't, don't eat that. Uh, and they talk about how uh, you're supposed to rub it on your lip, right? And see what happens, and then you eat a little bit of it and wait, wait a few hours. But they said that the, if the initial taste is bitter, they say do not eat it, because it's likely poisonous. That's one of the signs, a bitter a bitter plant is likely poisonous. This root of bitterness... I don't know about you, I I have these thistles in my backyard. My my neighbor warned me, He said, Frank, be careful with those thistles, because once they come into your backyard, very difficult to get rid of them. Uh, These thistles, no matter how well you try to pluck them, that root could be six or eight inches long. But at the very end, you see that the root breaks. It's designed that way. And at the very bottom, in the dirt, You know, several inches in the dirt. There's this little bit of root that remains. That little bit of root will regrow. And that's the dangerous thing because that little bit grows back and it grows back thicker. More potent. That's why here the author of Hebrews mentions this root of bitterness. Oftentimes uh, it's when it breaks the surface of the ground that bitterness shows up. Bitterness is what holds grudges, even after years or decades. To hold things against people, this person did this to me, I will hold it against them for life. Bitterness is what will eat you alive from the inside. is harboring hate when instead you're called to spur one another on to love and to good deeds. Here, the warnings about this bitterness... The warnings that it causes trouble there that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. Bitterness troubles your heart. It will trouble your speech. It will trouble your actions. It will trouble your relationships. The root of bitterness defiles many. It causes blood feuds, factions, dissensions. It's contrary to the principle of oneness. One faith, one hope, one baptism. Here, you think about the life of the church. The church is one, not two. That if you're thinking of us and them, that's two. That's two groups. When we th- should be thinking in terms of one, when our, when our vocabulary, you notice how uh, the world, they try to control your vocabulary, they try to change your vocabulary. And perhaps you might find yourself speaking in terms of their vocabulary, because that's part of the changing of our thoughts. So if you you find yourself in the church talking about us and them, then your vocabulary indicates that there is a faction. We must speak in terms of one, one faith, one hope, one baptism. Bitterness is a train wreck that leaves a horrible mess. It must be eradicated. It must be killed right away. So what to do about this bitterness? You must confess it as sin. You must not nurture it. You must confess it as sin. It is sin before God. You must acknowledge that it grieves God. It damages relationships. It causes divisions to the one body of Christ. That you are called with any sin. That you would turn away from it. That you would forsake it. Meaning you identify that sin, that grieves God, and I must turn away from it, I must forsake it, I must kill it. And if you're not killing sin, it will be killing you. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Rather, love should make a detailed list of the things done right by others to you. This is what love should do. Make a detailed list. Mental list, written list, whatever it is, detailed list of what others have done positively for us, not a detailed list of record of wrongs. Here, we ask, why am I in this passage? Am I trying to root anybody out? Well, this applies to me as it applies to you. We think about the matter of revival. Last week, we looked at, are you coming to Christ for life? If our study brings us to all kinds of knowledge, but unless we're coming to Christ for life, we've missed the gospel. Here we think about how, if revival is going to come to a people, what is God going to do when he brings revival? Is he going to bring them into a place where there's factions and division? I would think not. There has to be a cleaning of house, there must be a willingness among God's people. That we would be those who are the chief repenters. We must be those who are repenting. That we are forsaking our sin. That we would have unity and love among us. If without that, what revival would there be? The answer is none. We must be those who gather together for prayer in unity. Lifting up holy hands in prayer without wrath or dissension. Here we think also regarding the patterns of apostasy other than bitterness leading to apostasy, there's sexual immorality in verse 16, that no one is sexually immoral. Here, it's shameful when we think about the list of Christian ministers who have committed the sins of sexual immorality. And sadly, some of them are so so powerful, so, so well-liked, uh, so polished, that they can leave that church and go to another one and get another call as a minister. What 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 foolish group of people would call a, an adulterous minister to be their pastor? This is this is uh, unbelievable. At the heart of it is the heart of pride that says, God's laws do not apply to me. This is what happens when people rise in power. You expect it in the world that people would think, that they are above the law. Here, within Christendom, you and I are never allowed to think in this way. We're never above the law. We only get more dependent and have a greater duty to obey and submit to the law. Here, we think about some of the defenses that we ought to have, some of the defenses for sexual morality. The best defense against adultery is cultivating a strong, healthy marriage. Here, I'm sorry, I keep talking about this weed analogy uh, because it's summertime and the weeds are on me. You need to have a big, thick, healthy lawn so that the weeds don't grow. So first, got to have a healthy lawn. You can talk about all the chemicals, all the uprooting, wherever you want. If you don't have a healthy lawn, something will fill the void because I assure you, that lawn dies when there's not enough rain. You've got to water it. But those weeds, you notice, know, they're always green. You don't have to water them. That doesn't need, doesn't need any of that stuff. It will grow. The best defense against adultery is cultivating a strong, healthy marriage. This begins by saying, God, you have given me the best spouse I could possibly have. This one was custom picked for me. Here we think about how the Garden of Eden... Did Adam have a choice regarding a spouse? In some ways, yes. In some ways, no. Uh, The the, the no was God says, I will provide a helpmate suitable for you. Meaning that it was this one person that God provided for Adam. He didn't say, hey, I'm going to bring ten. You can pick the one you like best. He didn't say that. He said, this is the one for you. It was Adam who said, hey, this woman that you provided me, she was the one who, who gave me the fruit. It, it, was a, it was an accusation against God. God, you gave me someone who wasn't appropriate for me. Here, you think about your own life. Well, you had the opportunity to choose. right? Well, if you believe in the sovereignty of God, then your provision was no different than Adam's. It was one. And we start to think, hey, I could have been happier with somebody else. That That is the beginning of adultery. Here, we think about how the best preparation for a life of adultery. So this is, I'm talking about the negative. Best preparation for a life of adultery is a life of premarital sex. You hear that? So if you want to prepare yourself for adulterous life, meaning extramarital activity, then it's by premarital activity, outside the, the bounds of marriage, without, without the covenant of marriage. So do not be involved in that. Chastity before marriage is preparation the best preparation for faithfulness within marriage children children must learn self-control they must be taught self-control from an early age if they're not taught self-control regarding their screen time regarding their food regarding whatever as a toddler as as someone who's you know barely able uh, old enough to walk or to stand If they're not learning self-control then, you cannot expect that when they become a a preteen or a teenager, they will suddenly learn self-control regarding sexual activity. It's not going to happen. Self-control must be taught from a young age. Sanctification in life. Sanctification in life requires a sanctified use of the Internet. Here, you think about how it begins with what we see, and you desire it. Then it becomes activity and desire. But the warning is that fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. That's from Hebrews 13, 4. Fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. So this is the this is the answer that we ought to have. We ought to have uh, safety measures in place. You ought to have rules for yourself. That if, if there are particular times when you realize that the temptation to get on the wrong websites, then you should be off of your phone, off of your computer, whatever it is. Get off of it during that time. You need accountability. Get accountability. That you uh, you need uh, software programs for you. To get the software programs. Here we think also about relationships. That uh, you know, Billy Graham had this rule that he wouldn't meet with another woman. And some oftentimes people laugh at him, but this was his rule, meaning he was the rule who he was the one who instituted it, and he was the one who followed it. There is a certain wisdom in those kinds of rules. Here we think of also about unholiness. So it mentions here unholiness, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. This unholiness is profanity or irreverence. Esau, we read earlier in in Genesis, that he despised his birthright. And his birthright was more than just material matters. It applied also to spiritual matters. Esau said to his brother Jacob, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Here, we think about the common excuses for being irreverent or profane. It's the exaggeration of their physical or material state. God put me, God you put me in such a horrible situation that I could do no other than sin. Is this, is this what God does to us? That is, he, he gives us no other out? First, First Corinthians 10. That he always provides us an out. Was Esau really so hungry that he was about to die? You think about, uh, uh, was it three minutes, uh, three days, and three weeks? So three, three minutes without air, three days without water, three weeks without food. Did he really go for, for three weeks without food? I doubt it. Here, you think about how he could have negotiated things on other terms. Hey, listen, uh, for this bowl of lentil, lentil stew, how would I provide you a spring chicken? Right uh, A Cornish game hen, you know? We're talking, this is not even apples to apples. I think a spring chicken would have been a better, better trade. Keep in mind here that Esau was trading for a hill of beans. In right? some books, people's books, a bean is superior to a lentil. The bottom line is, probably was no meat in that thing. But here, we think about the heart of irreverence. Esau was despising the things of the Lord. He didn't see God's blessings as worth a hill of beans. That was his problem. He looked at it. He despised it. Apparently in this, in this culture, in the younger generation, people, people don't value fine china. But imagine you had fine china that, that had been handed down for generations. Would you take this fine china... And, uh, and take it outside, turn the dish upside down, and, and play Frisbee with it, with your brother or your sister? This this would be bad. If, if, if there was some kind of an heirloom that got passed down for generations. Here, we think about how this whole matter of irreverence. Do you and I commit the same sin when we gather As God's people. When we hear the word of God. When we hear doctrine being taught. Do we despise it? Do we take it lightly? Do we hear it and say. Oh you know what? That's great. But for another decade. Another time. Satan is the one who whispers in your ear. You can always commit your life to Christ tomorrow. It's okay. There will be plenty of time for you to become a Christian. That tomorrow will never come. That same pattern of thinking as as Esau, this irreverence, is what allows us to have worldly comforts that usurp our commitment to Jesus Christ. Understand that loyalty in your relationship to Christ will never be a convenient thing. It will never be convenient. It will always be costly. It must cost you something. The world will never understand it. They will always mock you. And at times they will revile you for it. It takes bravery to stand for Christ. And to follow him. So that's the second point. The patterns of apostasy. We have third despair of apostasy in verse 17. For you know that afterward when he desired to inherit the blessing. He was rejected. For he found no chance to repent. Though he sought it with tears. Here. Here. Esau desired to inherit the blessing. He despised it for years, however long that his brother said, Hey, sell me your birthright. And he said, Hey, I'm about to die. Well, what use is my birthright to me? Go ahead. He said, okay, fine. Whatever. I, I, I give you my word. You have my birthright. This is what he said. Well, first off, it's, it's a reminder to us that in all of life, we can never think of words as meaning nothing. You can't say hurtful things to people and say, Oh, it was just a bunch of words. No, Our words mean something. God's words mean something. And he expects that your words would mean something. Here. The ESV has, for he found no chance to repent. This is actually not a very good translation. It should be something more like, uh, he found no place for repentance. He had plenty of chance to repent. It's just that he refused to do so. Here. We ask, did Esau ever repent of his profanity, of his irreverence to the things of God? I don't see any record of it. His focus was on the blame to his brother. Genesis twenty-seven thirty-six: Is he not rightly named Jacob, one who grasped the heel? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Was Jacob somehow guilty of 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 taking away his birthright? On one hand he wants. He, he asked him that question. Hey first sell me your birthright. You, you want up all this stew? Hey sell me your birthright. But did Esau ever admit to despising his own birthright? He has to be responsible for his own sins. Here. We're told that he sought the blessing with tears. Grief and tears in life are no, no sure sign of repentance in the heart. Let this not fool you. The common situation is that people claim to seek the Lord when their consciences eat away at them, when the temporal consequences to their sins have caught up with them. Genuine repentance does not attempt, let alone demand, termination of the negative consequences. You look at the people who have had genuine repentance, you look at uh, King David. When, when God sends Nathan the prophet to him, the only thing that David said is, "I have sinned." He didn't say, "I have sinned," but this woman shouldn't have been taking a, a bath on the roof. It was just, "I have sinned." He didn't try to control. Hey, wait a minute. What about my kingdom? What about my family? What about my blessing? None of these things. Hey, God. God has control of that. God will handle it. He is the one who oversees the circumstances. He is the one who oversees. He is the one who dictates. The, the punishment or the discipline. We trust Him with that. As part of genuine repentance, we accept what God provides for us. That you and I ought to be concerned about that relationship with our Lord. Here, we think about how grief and despair was Esau's life. You realize that there's all kinds of grief and despair for people who are sinners. They bear the consequences. Just flip on the radio. Whether it be country western music, whether it be rap music, whether it be top forty pop music, all kinds of people are singing about lost love. How they they messed things up. They made bad decisions. They lost someone that they once loved. Relationship broken. Right. All kinds of grief and despair. Second Corinthians seven ten, for the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation but the sorrow of the world produces death this is what esau had he had the sorrow of the world produces death there was regret he wanted the blessing he wasn't able to receive it because he did not repent it's not as if if he repented he would have re- obtained it but that's the the temporal that's the earthly we ought to understand that god commands us to repent that we would forsake our sins that we would believe upon jesus christ this is what he calls us to, a better life for you and for me. Here, we think about how apostasy can come in more than one way. Not, not just a denial of right doctrine. There's also that of life. So going back to the roots of bitterness, this can lead to apostasy by your life. Sexual morality, uh, irreverence, that these can lead to apostasy in your life. Sin blinds us to our own failings. And wickedness then magnifies the sins of others around us and against us. When we, when we think much worse of those who have sinned against us, than we think about our own sins and our sins against others. There's something wrong. We need to be focusing on our own sins that we've committed against God, that we've committed against others. Here. Of these three, we think about bitterness, sexual morality, and irreverence. The world sees those, and it says that, uh, that irreverence is the most innocuous. It's the most mild of those three. But it's also the most common and the most dangerous. Any great and scandalous sin begins with a hefty dose of irreverence. Meaning there must have been irreverence in that person's life before a great sin. And irreverence is despising the teachings, the doctrines, the warnings of God in scripture. Here we think also the matter of missing the grace of God. Perhaps you're wondering, hey, is is this author here of scripture saying that it's possible to outsin the grace of God? Hey, why waste your time even wondering about that? Today is the day of salvation. You must repent and embrace the promises of the gospel. You must receive the grace of God. It is the right time now and today to repent and believe and to trust in Jesus Christ that your sins might be forgiven and washed away. For you children, to be raised in a godly Christian home, to be part of Christ's church since birth or your early childhood, these are only a true blessing and advantage if you embrace the promises as your own. If you appropriate the gospel of Jesus Christ and heed God's warnings. Otherwise, when you think about it, all of those advantages are actually greater marks against you That's right. for your judgment. That's right. Baptism, we talked about it. Baptism symbolizes the washing away of sin, the cleansing of us. Baptism also symbolizes the water of judgment. When you think about Noah and the ark, the water is what killed people. Your greater advantages, you must use them by believing upon Jesus Christ and being faithful to him. Do not despise the gospel that you hear. It matters not, children, who your parents or your grandparents or your ancestors are or were. Think about this. Esau's father was Isaac. Esau's grandfather was Abraham. What did that matter to him? Absolutely nothing. Nothing. It only resulted in greater judgment that he spurned the advantages he received. It is not enough for Christ to be the Lord of your parents. He must be your Lord also. You must believe. You must trust in Jesus Christ. He must be your Lord and Savior. For those who are outside looking in, see to it that you do not miss the grace of God. God's grace comes to you in Jesus Christ the Son, it's, he is freely offered to sinners. Embrace the promises of Jesus Christ as your own. Cling to Christ that you might be forgiven. That you might have eternal life. And trust that what God promises to sinners, he delivers. Let we go to our God together in prayer. Almighty God, we thank you, Father, for your promises are sure.